We started a, a series last week through the book of Jonah. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, it would be a good time to do that. Um, but it's, not a, it's called a minor prophet not because, of its, not because it doesn't have much to say and, and not because Jonah didn't kind of measure up to the par of the major prophets. It's not like minor league, major league kind of thing. It's a minor prophet simply because it's short. But its brevity, in its 48 verses, they are, it is just bursting with power. It is bursting with the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. It just, its pages are rich with that. In the book of Jonah, we, we're not approaching it as a story about a man and a fish. We're not, sto- we're not approaching it as a, as a story about a sinful city, although we'll see those things. We're, we're approaching it with this perspective of the big God that made it possible. And so each week we're going to come and we're going to look for this God, this God whose power is mind-boggling. I mean, it just blows you away. Whose mercy, he is relentlessly in pursuit of his mission of mercy. I mean, that's, that's what Jonah is all about. The whole story of Jonah is about God sending to extend mercy. Whose, whose uh, desire is, is that his grace would be received and that it, rather than his power crushing, it would benefit. You see, that's what God called Jonah to do. And so this truly is a big God story. And this week, as does every other week, we'll approach it asking, what does it teach us about God? What does it reveal to us about ourselves? And then what should we do in response. And so we're going to read Jonah again in chapter 1, verse 1. We'll make it through about 10 verses today. Uh, and we're going to read through that whole thing. I'll stop along the way and point out some things and highlight some of the nuances so that you don't miss them. So let's just begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And we'll stop right there. That's the verses we focused on heavily last week, demonstrating that this really is a book about God. It's first and foremost a book about God. It's, It's first and foremost a prophecy about who God is and what God is doing. Now, he doesn't do it in the same ways that that he does in other prophetic books of the Bible through his word, he shows us and how he works in and around his people to make his mission complete. He shows us through the events of Jonah's life. And we meet in these first two verses, the characters that are represented throughout the book. We meet the Lord. It's the first character that's introduced, the word of the Lord's capital L-O-R-D. And I pointed out that to you last week that that means that's a significant thing for us as we read the English Bible, because that signifies the proper name of of God. So it's Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to say it. Tomato, tomato. We're not really sure. We could debate it all day long. People do because they like to debate. But the reality is this is the proper name of God. The God who came and, and uh, showed himself and, and told us what his name was when Moses was in the desert. And he said, go and get my people out. The God who created, the, the one that Moses, as he wrote the book of Genesis, wrote of the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who put all these things together and who now sits sovereignly above it with all authority over all things. This is the Lord. And it's because that this is the Lord. I mean, we, we can't even have this book without it. I mean, you can't even go into the book. You can't you don't have the story. Everything falls apart. There's, there's Jonah's never running. Jonah's never, never hiding. Jonah's never sinning. Nineveh, they, they have no hope. There's no opportunity for them if you remove the Lord. I mean, if, if, if the story starts, Jonah, the son of Amittai, says, hey, I'm going to go to Nineveh. That's a different story, right? 
the Lord. That's, that's why we're approaching this as a big God story. And then we find Jonah. The one that God called and who chose to eventually run. He was a prophet during the, the reign of King Jeroboam. And he, he, that, that puts him somewhere around 800 to 750 B.C. I don't know if you want to know that or not, but it was a long time ago. That's what that means. And, and God looked at Jonah and, and had used Jonah in probably more than one way, but at least we know of one other time where Jonah prophesied and, and gave God's word to Israel. He prophesied that their borders were going to be reestablished. They had lost some of their land, and, and Jonah prophesied under the reign of King Jeroboam that their, that their borders were going to be reestablished, that they were going to be victorious. And I, I can only imagine that in that prophecy, Israel looked at him and heard him and loved him because of it. I mean, everybody loves the guy with good news, right? Nobody wants to shoot that messenger. It, they show up on, the, on your doorstep with a check for 10 million bucks. It's not like you're upset about that, right? That makes us feel good. Much more so than somebody shows up and gives you an eviction notice. It's different. But God sent Jonah. And, and, and God called Jonah, sent Jonah with a, with a new message. In fact, if you think about what he sent him to proclaim now, it's, it's really different. First, it's, hey, our, our borders are going to be reestablished. Our, our, our foundations, we're, we're, we're going to be okay. God is with us. He's not forgotten us. He's not forsaken us. Our, our land is, is safe and secure in his hands. And now he says, go and call them to repentance. And so that sounds a little different, doesn't it? Hey, sinner, repent. God is coming. He's going to destroy you. It's a much different message. But here's Jonah from a, from a place, a town called Gath Hefer. I know it's, uh, everybody wants to be from a town named after a female cow. You know, I mean, we feel good about that, right? I want to live where they have lots of cows. And, and that's not really it. But that's the name of the town, Gath Heifer. And, and it's probably there where he received this call. And then we meet Nineveh. Not really truly meet Nineveh. It's, obviously, it's a city. It's representative of a bunch of people. But the city was known through the scripture as, as a powerful city. It was the capital of Assyria. And at one time, it was known to be one of the greatest cities in all the world, in all the known world. It was, it was powerful. The, the scripture says that it was expansive. Here it calls it a great city. It, it was known to be strong and extremely wealthy, affluent. You know, that was the, it was the New York City, maybe. It was the place where, where people went. It was influential and it had power that resi resided within it. And that's not the only way it was described in the Scriptures. You see, the Scriptures remember it also to be a vile city, an evil, wicked city, an idolatrous city, a city full of lies. And it's not just Jonah that says this. It's, it's known through Nahum and some of the other prophetic writings. It's, it's, it's full of lies and thieving. See, the reality is it's not that great in God's eyes. In fact, I, I think, if, just to build some comparison, I think it's probably uh, Nineveh was the original sin city. It was the place where you went and hoped nobody found out what happened. It, what happens in Nineveh stayed in Nineveh kind of thing. I mean, it was the original gangster of sin cities. It was the OG, you know. That's, that's what I, I think it's what we need to recognize. This was a place full of evil that was proud, I think, probably of its evil. It was rebellious. You see the irony? 
already as I, as I talk about that. Do you, do you sense the irony? God called a prophet to go there. The God of power who rules over all creation, who has power to just erase it, who had demonstrated throughout history that he could end it. He sends somebody to it to call it to something different. Already, already I hope you're getting the sense of who this God is because of what he's done. In verse 3, we'll pick up reading. But Jonah... Now, I can't go any further because that really should cause our minds just to squeal to a screech. I mean, just come to a screeching. I mean, we should hear the tires locking up. But Jonah. When God calls, when God commands us, the expression that should be last on our lips is, but, that's, I, I don't think it's advisable. And I think you'll see today it's maybe not advisable. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into, the, down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And I, I want you to see this. He, he's not just running from the command of God. He's not just disobeying the command of God. By doing that, he is actually striving to remove himself from the presence of God. And it's not presence like physical presence, okay? The, the word is really a, a word that demonstrates his gaze, that, that, that Jonah is before his face, and he's trying to get out of his line of sight. You see, there's a reality. Every one of us have been about doing this since the fall of man in, 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 in the creation. The very first thing that the man and woman did, as soon as they rebelled, was they hid from one another. They covered themselves up. They saw they were naked. They put on clothes. Well, they put on leaves. And, and then they hear God... And they hide from him. And we've been hiding ever since. We've been running out, trying to, trying to escape his gaze, trying to escape his, his line of sight. We've been hiding. And Jonah is hiding. And I think you can see it. I don't, I don't, I don't think it over-spiritualizes it too much. Over and over and over, we hear he goes down, down, down. To the point that he's at the bottom of the ship, at least in his mind, I think, as, as far away as he can get. And... That would be pretty intense, I think, if it stopped there. But, in verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and was fast asleep. See, Jonah, he tried to hide from God. He was running. He was fleeing. He was hiding. But God, but Yahweh, but the Lord wouldn't let him just go. You know, and you might think, well, that sounds pretty vengeful. That sounds pretty horrendous. I mean, come on, doesn't Jonah, doesn't Jonah have free will? Can he just do his own thing? Can he just be his own man? Who is this God? It's the God of power who hurled. And I don't know how to say that word other than just emphasize it. Hurled, right? I mean, it's with power. 
right? It's like me taking a baseball and throwing it right at the side of your head, hurled the, 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 the storm upon them. And it was so great. I want you to think about this. I mean, I think we get some cues from the sailors. The sailors were, they were flat out afraid, right? This is something they did every day. They knew what it was to be in the midst of a storm on a ship. They did this every day, going back and forth to different places across the sea. They knew the storms. They knew the way this, this thing happened. They knew, they knew what to expect. And this storm was so bad. Well, what are they doing? They're throwing everything overboard. We've got to lighten the ship or we're going down. And it's obvious, I, I think it's obvious that, that that's, that's not a common occurrence. Nobody would have jobs on the ship. Nobody would send anything by sea if every time they got out there, they were having to hurl everything overboard, throw everything overboard so that they could make it to the other side, right? There's a reason people are shipping across the sea because it was dependable travel. But here they are in the midst of this storm. And, 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 and on top of it, I don't, I don't think, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I wasn't there. But I don't think that it was common practice that every time they got some wind and some waves and some rain that they're bound on their knees and calling out to their gods and just scared for their life. This is a, a horrific storm, and something in them knew that it wasn't just your normal everyday storm, and, and, and it even gives personification to the ship that it was about to break apart. It was about to rend itself. It was about to submit to the authority of God under his power, and it was going to break apart. But where is Jonah? Fast asleep. I mean, you... You, you don't, I don't want you to mix this up with the sleep that came, that, that Jesus was in the midst of when he was in the bow of a boat in a ship. You know, when I used to read through the Bible, and I still read through the Bible regularly, but, but back when I first started, before I'd ever studied this, before I'd ever really dug into what this was, it always drew this parallel into mind of Jesus being on the ship in the midst of the storm and, and, the, and the apostles being scared to death that they were going to die. And they go to Jesus, 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 what are you doing? Sleep and wake up, we're going to die. And he stands up and he commands the wind to stop and, and, and rebukes the waves and the calm, the, the calm just follows and it just, it falls. And they're safe and they're sound. And, and that's, I, I used to draw this parallel until I began to, to dig in just a little bit. You see, the word that Jonah is, that, that's referring to Jonah as being asleep is, is a word that doesn't talk about, it. he wasn't just taking a nap. The word is, is used to refer to people who slept on, with, with, as, as a result of great exhaustion. Like they couldn't have stayed awake if they'd wanted to stay awake. The, the word literally would speak to things like a, a, a person who is stunned or stupefied. It's almost like he had been anesthetized or maybe taken too many sleeping pills and he just couldn't wake up. But I want you to see this. And the reason I want you to see this is because Joan running from God, hiding from God, going to the bottom of the boat, falling fast asleep, being stunned. He's, he's out of touch. God is raging around him, and he is so disconnected, he has no understanding of it. He can't even sense what God's doing to get him to see his desperate need. See, I think sometimes, I think sometimes that when we're in the midst of these storms, we think we got all these answers and these plans to get out of the storm, and and really the storm is, is meant more to tell us to look at God. But Jonah, he's so far gone, he can't even sense it, he can't even feel it. He's fast asleep. So at some point along the way, people begin looking 
In verse 6, we pick it up. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? What are you thinking, you idiot? We're about to die here. And you're down here asleep. How are you even sleeping through this? What is going on in your mind? What, what is, what's happening in you? I mean, can you sense that I mean, the, the captain probably at some level was worried. He's thinking, oh, man, we've lost Jonah, the guy who paid us to go. We've lost him. Oh, there he is, you sleeper. What are you doing down here? Don't you know what's happening up there? Come and help us. That's not how he says it, is it? So the captain came to him. What do you mean, you sleeper? And the second time Jonah hears this, arise. God calls him first to arise and go. And I don't think it's a coincidence now that he hears this captain say, arise, call out to your God. Come up out of hiding, Jonah. Come up out of the place that you have been. Come up out of the place where you have run to and call on your God. And this sea captain, I I think he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea. But look at the lengths that God will go to reach his people. Even a pagan man will be used by God. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Maybe your God actually has power to do something. We've We've been up on the deck just crying out. We've been up on the deck throwing things overboard. We're losing money hand over fist. Come come on, you call out to your God. Maybe your God will be able to do something. Maybe. Arise and call out to him. It goes on in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. So now they're, they're all together. The seamen, uh, the, the sailors on, on the deck of this boat. I, this is crazy because they're in the middle of this storm and, and, and they want to know, well, who's responsible for this? I, you know, typically you wait till you get to the other side of the trouble. But they, I mean, I guess they figure we got to figure this out. So they say to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they roll dice, they pull straws. or and Actually, the, the way they said that they cast lots are, is that they would have these stones and one, one side is marked white and one side is marked black. And, and based on the way you roll them and that they come up, depends on, it, it, tell, it gives you the message basically, yes or no, that's, that's him or not. And so, so that's what they do. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Now, wait a minute. You fear God? The the one running? The one hiding? The one seeking to escape his his line of sight, you, you fear God? I fear, I fear the Lord, capital, you know, he uses his proper name, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Before they were just flat out afraid. Now they're just exceedingly afraid. So now it's even worse. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So here Jonah's outed, busted. No more hiding. 
No more running. You got to take responsibility. It's really ironic when you stop and think about it. Jonah was doing everything he could to not go to pagans and not preach about this God and not give them an opportunity for mercy and not show them the love and concern that he had been called to do. Instead, he's going to this, he's running away. And in the midst of it, the ironic thing that happens is, is that ultimately he ends up having to say, I'm from God. Do you get it? God doesn't just let us go. And in one way, that, that may freak you out. But as I've grown, as I've learned, that gives me great comfort. You see, here's the truth about who I am. I am Jonah. Most of my life, I wish it wasn't true, but most of my life I've been running from God. I had all kinds of excuses. It didn't go the way I wanted. I'm hurting. I'm depressed. This didn't, this didn't go to plan. People didn't measure up to my expectation. I had all kinds of good reasons. I'm not worthy. Who am I that you'd send me? Do you know what? Do you know who I am? Do you know my past? Do you know where I have you forgotten what you saved me out of? See, it wasn't just as a non believer that I ran. So we are all running. But as believers, it's a whole lot more evident. See, I was running. Even as he called me to, to, to full-time ministry, and I don't think everybody gets that call. I think we are all called to ministry. As he called me to this vocation, I, I ran. For years, I ran. I tried to fight against it, and I did everything I could to push him away and, and hide from him. It used to scare me to death that I couldn't hide from him. Let me let you in on a secret. It's his grace and it's his mercy and it's his love that's being demonstrated by him not letting us go. See, you know what this says? You know what this story teaches us about God? You know what I hope you walk out of here today about, about knowing about God? I tried to come up with a catchy phrase. I tried to come up with some some uh, nicely worded flowing phrase, and I realized I, I wasn't going to be able to, so I just leaned on the Scripture to do what it's meant to do. Psalm 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know what I'd have done to Nineveh? You're evil. I'm done. You know what I'd have done to Jonah? See ya, I've got others. That's a sad statement on me. But it shows the power of our God being exercised in his relentless pursuit of his mission. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What's that reveal about us? I've shared what it reveals about me. I've, I've been a runner. And I'm in need of a Savior. And at times I've been scared to death of His presence. 
But as I've grown and as he's matured me and he's shaped me and molded me, when I find myself in the midst of a storm, I am thankful for his grace and his mercy and his love for me. You see, what it says about us is that we are the objects of his affection. Do you get that? He loves you this way. He loves you this much that that the storms, they don't just come. The storms don't just come up on you. They don't just arrive upon you simply because because he wants to get even with you. But he he wants you to come back to him. The storms, we don't get into the midst of them because God loves us too little, but because he loves us so much. And we, his people, are the object, the recipient, the beneficiary of this grace and mercy that's empowered by the sovereign God, the sovereign creator of all things. Because he is steadfast in this great love. So what do we do? What are we going to do in light of that? What do, how do we even respond to this? I mean, I, I, what can we possibly do? I think there's two ways we can answer that from this passage. Quit running. Stop. Quit hiding. Step out into the light. We're all running in some way. We're, we're, all, we're all trying to get away in some way. We're all trying to do our own thing in some way. I mean, I brought a map. I, I, let me show you the idea of this. So, so here's Jonah, right? Jonah, Jonah is in a place called um, Gath Heifer, we think. That's probably where he was at. He's at a place in Gath Heifer. We pull that map up. He's in a place called Gath Heifer, most likely. And he's called to go northeast to a place called Nineveh. And what's he do? He turns around and runs 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And there's this, this physical movement that led him. I mean, he's, he's actually trying to go away. He's actually leaving the place that God called him to go and going the opposite direction of that place. But here's the thing is, you don't actually have to move to run. You, you get that? You don't actually have to go anywhere. I mean, people point out how rebellious it was of Jonah to run the other direction, but let me ask you a question. Would it have been less rebellious if Jonah had just stayed where he was at? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to Nineveh! Preach repentance! But Jonah stayed. Is that less rebellious? I mean, is that, is that less running? Is that less hiding? Is, is that less sinful? I mean, what if, he didn't, what if he didn't go to Nineveh, but, but he decided to go less, further into Babylonia? You know, maybe he just goes, instead of going northeast, he decides, well, I'm, I'm going to go east instead of northeast. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's another city that would be a little easier for me to deal with, a little, little less offensive to me, a little, little less evil, a little more deserving in my eyes. I mean, I'll go to that city, I'll go to those people, and I'll preach. Would that have been less rebellious? Would it have been less sinful? What if God had called and Jonah had just sat still and, God, I got another plan for my life. I don't want to be your prophet anymore. What if he had gone to Nineveh and preached another message? What if he had just changed the words? 
You see, what I'm trying to get across to you is that there's a number of ways we run. We run by building our own kingdom instead of his. We run by living for our own desires instead of his. We run for trying to bring glory to ourselves instead of him. We run. Running from God is rebellion against God. Tim Keller points out as he speaks about this and as he taught through Jonah, Tim Keller points out that that's the way, probably the best definition of sin. It's running from God. Any time, any time that, that God lays something out, gives us clear understanding of it, and there's a but attached to our name, but Seth, but whoever, put your name in the blank, and there's a but attached to our name in, in response to God, that's sinful. And there will always be a boat to take us where we shouldn't be. Do you think it was an accident that there was a boat there waiting for Jonah? I don't think so. There's always going to be a way to get away. There's always going to be a way into sin. You may make it happen all on your own. There's a lot of people that, that look at Jonah and they, say, they think that he had to sell everything. He had to liquidate everything, sell his house, his property, whatever he had, any livestock, sell it all so that he could afford this trip. The, the thought is that he was leaving and never planning to come back. He was running as far away as he could. He was going to make a way. Isn't it sometimes we, we come to those things and we look and, oh, well, you know, if Jonah had gotten down to the seaport and he'd not seen a boat, he could say, then, then he might think, well, God didn't really want me to go this way because he didn't, he didn't give me a boat. But couldn't you see him walking up to that ship and saying, well, God must be okay with me going this way because he gave me a boat. Haven't you done that? Things are going the way you expect them to. Things are, things are happening out in front of you. Sure, sure you feel the sacrifice. Sure, you feel the, 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 the release and, and, the, and the price that you have to pay to get there. Sure, you feel it and you sense that. But hey, there's still this opportunity. God must want me to go that way. It's still working out the way I want it to. There will always be a boat to take you where you shouldn't be. See, we shouldn't, make, we shouldn't be mistaking opportunity with God's divine plan and purpose for us. There's always going to be that opportunity. Running from God is rebellion against God. And there will always be, for those of us that he calls his own, there will always be a storm to direct us back to him. If you're sitting in this room today and you recognize that your life is not where it's intended to be, you're recognizing that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you and you're recognizing that that things aren't working out the way they should and even though you've found opportunity, you recognize that you're having to wade through it and you are just feeling the weight of the storm and, and you recognize that God has hurled it right at you. That storm is there for your good. Your God loves you. In fact, the truth is that the writer of Hebrews picked up on this in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3. He picked up on this. There's not an instant of suffering or trouble that we as believers face that is not disciplined from a loving Father. Every struggle you face, every trial, every test, every difficulty, every circumstance that you recognize is beyond your control that does not go to plan, every instant of your life that feels difficult, he is calling you back. He is calling you to quit running. 
Not because he loves you too little, but because he loves you so much. So stop running. And I think the second piece that we can draw from this, what are we to do in response to this gracious and glorious God? Is obey God's word and enjoy his presence. You see, you can't separate these two. You can't separate the command of God from the smile of God or the face of God, I guess we should say. It's it's not that that God is ever not loving you. It's not that God is ever not uh, for you and that God is ever against you. As his child, he is for you. Even the storms that he sends to you are for you, for your good, for his glory. But you can't see it. You can't feel it. And the warmth of his smile feels like a burning gaze. Because you've separated yourself from his word. And you're trying to hide from his presence. I think the, I think the idea that the, the thing that we can do, the principle that we can apply to our own lives is as we quit running, then obey God's word that we might enjoy his presence. We don't just, we don't just have to run 180 degrees away to be rebelling. There is, no, there is no almost obeying. It's either we do or we don't. So how do we know? How do we know? God's call on your life will require you to sacrifice something. God's call on your life will, call, will, will require you to sacrifice something. If you, can, if you can sit around Christian folks, if you, can, if you can be a part of all that's going on in church and, and you just come and it's always get, 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 and there's absolutely no give, I don't care how many times a week you show up at this building or any other. He's called you to sacrifice. Jesus said it. Jesus said, daily, pick up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound That doesn't sound easy, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like there's no price to pay. That doesn't sound like there's not something coming in this walk. Pick up your cross. And we could read it. Pick up your electric chair. Pick up your, your, your apparatus of death. Pick it up and die to yourself. That might work itself out in setting aside your pride. Oh, I don't. I want to be right. I'm going to prove this person wrong, and, and, and I'm right. Google, what's Google say? Oh, I'm right. You see it? You see it? Anybody that knows me, I struggle with that. Let's be honest. It, it could be setting aside our wisdom and our, our, our thoughts of what's right and wrong, even though we know that that's not what God's Word said. Well, you know, that's an old book. It can't still apply today, right? I mean, he didn't mean that. At least not for today. I know God said it, but I don't like it. Set that aside. Not seeking vengeance, offering uh, offering that instead of forgiveness. Setting aside our own wisdom, bowing to what he would say. Setting aside our own goals and agendas. There's probably not a person in this room that doesn't have a goal of some sort in your life. Is it your goal? Or is it God's goal for you? You see, it's going to call you to sacrifice something. 
But hey, Jonah, Jonah had to sacrifice. I mean, he had to sell everything. He had to leave his family, leave his home, leave, his, leave everything behind. He had to sacrifice. But who was the beneficiary of everything that Jonah did? Jonah. So he thought. See, as we sacrifice, if it's ever really about us, then that's not the sacrifice God calls us to. God's call on your life will purposefully direct you to be a blessing to others. You see, so if you're saying, oh, I'm sacrificed, I'm here every week. I'm, I'm, I'm serving in hospitality. I, I'm, I'm doing all the good things that religious people do. People coming over to my house once a week and they, they eat dinner and, and I have Bible study. And, and then I turn around and I look at God and I say, God, look at all I've done for you. You owe me. Who am I serving? Others or myself? God or me? See, God's calling your life will always put you in a place where you are a blessing to others. I don't think there's any place in Scripture, and I could be wrong about this. If I am, show me so that I don't ever say this again because I don't like being wrong. That's just something I don't enjoy doing. But I don't think there's a, a place in Scripture that ever commands you to make sure you get yours. Right? I got to get mine. Nobody else is looking out for me, so I got to. I got to get mine. And then I'll make sure everybody else has theirs. But first, I'm going to get mine. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's a place in Scripture that calls us to that. Do you see why it's so important that everyone sitting in this room, everyone that lives and belongs to the body of Christ, why we play our part? Because as I pour myself out for you, I need you to pour yourself out for me. And as the people sitting on your left and on your right pour themselves out for you and for one another, they need you pouring back into them. Because the reality is God will use you to bless others. And he will bless you through those you bless. See, that's the beauty of his plan, that we don't stand in self-sufficiency. That we see his grace being bestowed upon us through his people. And, and, and that sounds like a lot of work, right? I mean, sacrifice and blessing others and not thinking of myself first. That, that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like I'm going to be one exhausted dude. Now, I'm going to fall fast asleep in the bottom of a boat. Here's the promise. Here's the hope. God's call on your life will be where you enjoy the, the assurance of his presence. You see, I don't know how, I, I don't know how it works out. I don't, I don't know how, how it happens, but I can, I can promise you that when you're living the life God's called you to, you will know he's with you and you will have his power. And you will, you, you will be able to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do without him. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, I mean, he's telling these people to leave their homes. He's telling these people to give up their lives. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. Now you go, and you go make disciples. You be fishers of men. You, you do something different than you've ever done before. But I will be with you to the end of the age. His promise to be with them is contingent upon something. It's on his command to go. They, they couldn't have sat around and just done nothing and said, oh, Jesus is with us. Let's, let's celebrate. They would have never known it. Certainly he'd have been there because he'll never leave us or forsake us, but they would have never enjoyed the presence, the assurance of his presence. You see, sometimes I think, I think our struggle is, is that when we're in the midst of the storm, we feel like 
we're, we're, we've been abandoned. We feel like somehow God has failed us. What, what in the world has happened? Why is, why, where are you at? Why aren't you with me? And so we write poems like Footprints, and, and, and we talk about these times where we feel all alone. And we get to the other side. We get out of that storm, and we recognize it's because of his grace, because of his love for us that he gave it. We get to the other side, and we're able to look back and recognize we were never walking through that storm. He was carrying us. You see, yeah, there's sacrifice. Yeah, sometimes it's going to feel difficult. Yeah, you're going to have to consider others more significant than yourselves. But yeah, this is where you get to walk with Jesus. And the beauty, in in my mind, the beauty of this is, is that in my brokenness and in my failure, he wants to walk with me. He wants to carry me. He wants to walk with you. He wants to carry you. So quit running. Get up and go where he sent you. Get up and do what he's called you to do. Get up and be the people he's called you to be. This way I'm closing, let me just ask you a couple of just quick questions just to bring some application. Just ask yourself, am I living with just memories of obedience? If you were to tell your testimony, would it be about what you used to be, about what you used to do, about how you used to worship God with your life, about how you used to know his presence? Or are you trying in some way to substitute what you have done in the past? Trying to substitute that for the pressing responsibility of your present submission? God, I I know you're calling me, but look at who I was for you. Look at what I did for you. Don't, Don't forget that, God. If that's you, I want you to hear the words of a pagan sailor. Arise, you sleeper. Call out to your God. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious and merciful. Abounding in steadfast love. Father, I hope you'll impress upon us the hope the, the, the precious hope that is available. God, would you just show us? the mercy. May we, may we sense your grace that even in words of conviction and discipline, you are there on our side for our good. We love you and thank you. Just pray, Father, that that we would 
that we would be able to see the places we're trying to hide, the ways we're trying to run, that we might stop and rest in your gaze and enjoy the warmth of your smile upon, the smile upon your face. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I didn't bring this up before, but I feel like I need to say it. It came from Alistair Begg, and so I can't take credit for it. I don't want to. The power, I think, in this story is that we see this prophet that was reluctant to go and offer mercy. A prophet that that wanted to run and wanted to hide and didn't want to obey. But in response, we find a God who is reluctant to let him go. Reluctant to start with condemnation. Reluctant to, to just smite and wipe away and ignore and turn his gaze away. See, I'm thankful for that kind of reluctance. I'm thankful that he is a God who loves us full of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love. That is our Lord. See, and today, I, I, I pray as you hear the words that, yeah, you, I, I pray that you'll feel conviction from the Spirit. I do, because I know it's for your good. I know it's for His glory. But I, I pray that as you ask those questions of yourself, am I... Was I ever was I? I pray that that you'll find great comfort as well. Comfort in the fact that where Jonah where, where Jonah was reluctant, Jesus was willing. You see, it, it wasn't it wasn't God sent His Son, but Jesus said no. No, God sent His Son, and Jesus came. He, didn't, he, he left heaven. He set himself apart. He left the confines of the, of the covenant, of the, of the comforts of the glory of the Godhead. And he stepped away from it and he, and he humbled himself to, the, to, to, to become a servant, to, to put on flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. You see, Jesus gave much up so that we can enjoy much good. So you, as you ask those questions, I know you're going to sense conviction. I know you're going to find failure. Let's just be okay with the fact that we're going to find failure. And then let's dev, dive headlong into the ocean of grace and mercy and love that Jesus has bestowed upon us through his death and through his resurrection. So come when you're ready and remember the price he paid for you, for your good. If you are struggling with something in your life, if you recognize you're running and you, you want help stopping, if you just want, want to talk about it, need people to pray with you about it, I, I'll be at the back. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray over you. I'd love to encourage you. God is for you. However you need to respond, I'd encourage you to do as Matt leads us in song.